Shalom, this is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avrachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you. We love you and we adore you. Father, I thank you for this Shabbat, for this opportunity you have given us to gather together as mishpacha, as, uh, as family to worship before you, to receive from you, to enter into your holy of holies, to enter into your very throne room today. Lord, I pray that as we open up your word that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives, that it will be your voice heard, your words received. Nothing of me will be involved except that which you have ordained for this, promise, for this purpose. And Lord, that you will uh, uh, encourage us, uplift us, and build us to be able to leave this place to impact the world around us for the good and the glory of your kingdom and your holy name. B'shem Yeshua In the name of Yeshua Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen. This week we're in Parsha Vayigash, uh, which is uh, the second to last Parsha in Bereshit, in Genesis. Um, as I said earlier, it is always odd when we get this far into Genesis because it feels like we just started it. Part of that is, is that we cover so much ground historically in the development of the nation of Israel in the book of Genesis, in the 50 chapters of Genesis, and then we spend the next four uh, books just going from Israel getting ready to leave Egypt to Israel getting ready to enter the promised land, uh, and, uh, and the, the 50 years or so, give or take, that that span of time covers from Exodus 1 through, uh, through the end of Deuteronomy. So we see this vast difference in, in time frame between Genesis and the rest of the Torah. And so it's really interesting and mind-boggling as we start to move through this and realize how rapidly uh, Genesis seems to fade away each year in the Torah cycle. But this week we're in Parsha Vayigash. We are now in the Parsha. It's one of my many favorite parsha in which we see Joseph finally reveal himself officially to his brothers. He's been kind of playing mind games with them for a while now. He's kind of been testing the grounds to see uh, where their heart is, if they're the same as they were when they, they uh, sold him into slavery or if their hearts have changed any uh, since then. And he wants to really kind of get a feel for who they are. But here in this week's parsha, he finally reveals himself to them. Last week's Parsha closed out with uh, the threat of Benjamin being in prison because he theoretically, uh, uh, quote-unquote, stole the uh, goblet of Joseph that supposedly had magical powers and so on. And uh, Judah starts to get a little uh, uptight and uh, starts to become a little aggressive because he realized... He told his dad, you know what, my life's on the line, my family's life's on the line if Benjamin doesn't come back to you, and here's this threat that Benjamin's going to be put in prison and, and potentially and probably put into slavery, um, and he gets a little scared, he gets a little upset, and he goes before uh, uh, Joseph and begins to plead his case for Benjamin's life, and ultimately what he ends up doing is saying, look, here's the deal. Our dad's old. This is his youngest son. This is uh, the, the one of the only two sons from the same mother. Uh, his, his older brother was, uh, was killed uh, years ago. He doesn't really say I'm responsible for or that we're responsible for, but he says his oldest brother, uh, older brother was killed uh, years ago, and if our father loses this son too, he'll die on the spot. He can't handle it. So how about instead of uh, Benjamin staying in prison, how about I sacrifice my own life? 
and I take on the, the punishment instead of him and you let him go. And so here's where we pick up in, in Genesis chapter 45, verse 1. This is after Judah's pled, uh, pled his case to Joseph. Verse 1 of chapter 45 says, Now Joseph could no longer restrain himself in front of all those who were standing before him. So he cried out, Get everyone away from me. So no one stood with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. So up to this point, we're talking two separate encounters with Joseph face-to-face in his throne room, two separate times that the brothers come before him, that Joseph recognizes them instantly, and they have no clue who he is, two separate times that all they see is an Egyptian, some other Joshmo Egyptian sitting on the throne uh, uh, doing the, the, this authoritative role and giving him food or not giving him food, two separate times that Joseph spoke Egyptian while they spoke Hebrew so that they wouldn't understand and recognize that this was one of their own, two separate times that he understood every word they said in secret because they thought with the translators there that he didn't know what was being said. So two times now that they stood before Joseph and had absolutely no clue that their brother was standing before them, their long lost brother that they literally sold off into slavery that he was standing right there before him. So Joseph can take it no longer, and he breaks down in tears, and he kicks everyone out except for his brothers. Verse 2, but he gave his voice to weeping so that the Egyptians heard, uh, and Pharaoh's household heard. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Now, they've already said he's still alive, so now he's just saying, is he really still alive, or are you just messing with my emotions? Is our father still alive? And his brothers were unable to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Do you imagine being Judah? It was Judah who said, hey, let's sell him off. It does us no good if he dies. Let's sell him off. At least we'll make a little something off the deal. So what if we hurt our father? At least we'll make a little something. We'll get rid of the punk. He won't be in our way anymore. He won't be tattling on us anymore. We won't have to deal with it. Let's just sell him off and whatever we can get, we can get. Which, in all honesty, is, I believe, why Judah is standing before Joseph taking the rap himself. Judah is, uh, is, in essence, making penance, if you would, for what he did uh, against Joseph. I think it's a sign of Judah's change of heart because years ago he could care less about the favored son of his father, but now he cares so much about his relationship with his father, about his father's heart, about everything else going on that he refuses to let uh, what happened to Joseph happen to Benjamin. So here they are. They break down in fear. Joseph just revealed himself. I, I imagine that this is the first time Joseph speaks to them in their language rather than an Egyptian. Could you imagine all this time you're talking through a translator, then all of a sudden big dude on the throne speaking Egyptian starts to speak in Hebrew and starts to talk to you and tell you that he's your brother that you sold off into slavery. Now these are things that, that the brothers had never revealed to this man sitting on Pharaoh's throne. There would be no other way that they would have been, that he would have known who their brother was that they had mentioned several times or what happened to him if it weren't actually him. So as soon as he says this, they break down in fear. Verse four, then Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. So they came near. I'm Joseph, your brother, the one you sold to Egypt, he said. So now don't be grieved and don't be angry in your own eyes that you sold me here since it was for preserving life that God sent me here before you. For there has been two years of famine in the land, and there will be five more years yet with no plowing or harvesting. But God sent me ahead of you to ensure a remnant in the land and to keep you alive for a great escape. So now it wasn't you, uh, who, it wasn't you, you didn't send me here, but God. And he made me a father to Pharaoh, Lord over his whole house, 
and ruler over the entire land of Egypt. So imagine the brothers are sitting here petrified in fear. Here's the most powerful man in Egypt, literally. The most powerful man in Egypt standing before them who literally has the power to wipe them off the face of the earth like you never existed. Rightfully, probably has the option to do so because of what they've done to him. He reveals himself to them and says, listen, don't be scared. I'm not going to hurt you. You need to recognize that what you did, sure, you did it. You made the choice to, to sell me into slavery. You made the choice to write me off. You made the choice to make me go through everything I went through. But it wasn't you that sent me here. You may have played a part in it, but it wasn't you. You may have jumped ahead of the game of what God's intention and his, de his desire and his will was. But his will was for me to land in Egypt so that he could use me to provide redemption and salvation for you so that we will have future generations for some great escape to come. So now Joseph's not only revealing himself, but he's prophesying of what's going to come when the time occurs that uh, the, the nation of Israel begins to break forth out of Egypt. And it's this really awesome uh, narrative that we see here as he reveals himself. And I imagine as he's saying all of this and he's saying, look, you got nothing to fear. Understand you did this short, but it wasn't you. God wanted this to happen. Not necessarily the way it did, but he wanted it to happen because he had a reason. Don't be afraid. I'm not going to hurt you. I love you. I am excited that we are restored. I'm excited that we are renewed. I'm excited that we have come back together again. Don't be afraid. I am not going to hurt you. We go forward to uh, Genesis chapter. This is actually the end of next week's portion. Genesis chapter 50. This is when uh, 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 my mind just went blank. Holy man. Uh, this is when uh, Israel, their father, Jacob, dies. There we go. Uh, Joseph kept coming to mind. It was the other J. Uh, Jacob uh, dies, and the brothers come together, and Joseph's there with them when he dies, and all of a sudden it clicks. Whoa, what if the only reason why Joseph hasn't killed us yet is because he didn't want to break our father's heart? What if the only reason he hasn't killed us yet was because our dad's alive, and, and now he's not, and we're not in Canaan anymore? We don't have the protection of the, the relationships we've developed in Canaan. Now we're here in his turf, and he's still the great authority. What happens now? And so Joseph, in verse 19 of Genesis chapter 50, uh, verse 15 is where the brothers start to, to cry out, and they say, maybe Joseph will be hostile toward us and pay us back in full for all the evil we showed him. Uh, but in verse 19, Joseph says, but Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. For am I in the place of God? In other words, is it my job to pay what's due to you for your actions, for your sinful ways? Am I in the place of God? Yes, you yourselves planned evil against me, but God planned it for good in order to bring about what is this day to preserve the lives of many people. Joseph tells his brothers, yeah, 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 yeah. look, you guys were horrible. Like, you guys should go jump off a cliff. It's ridiculous what you did, but no worries. I have no hard feelings. I love you. I am going to still protect you and care for you. I am still going to make sure that, you know, he made a way for them to have the land of Goshen, which was the most uh, uh, fertile area in Egypt at that point, so that they could have their, their herds and such, and that the nation of Israel could grow and develop and become very uh, vastly wealthy. 
So much so that as we enter the book of Egypt, uh, I mean the book of Exodus, and they're in Egypt, they're, the, 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 the Egyptians are scared to death that this nation that is birthed within them is growing so large and so rapidly that they're going to try to overthrow Pharaoh and his throne. And so we see that, that God used Joseph for this provision. Uh, and, you know, we have a lot of times we have these discussions, especially with nonbelievers, uh, you know, where does good and evil come from? If, if God is the author of all good, then, then did he also author evil? Did this come about? Da, da, da. How did this all happen? And we look back at our own lives and we may think about things that we've, situations we put ourselves in, situations we maybe put others in, things that we've done to harm people, but how it's still turned around in the end for good. And we go, well... If God's plan was for Joseph to sit on the throne in Egypt the whole time, was it God's plan for his brothers to sell him into slavery? And we have to go, okay, well, one is good and one is evil. So if God's plan was for the good to come about and the evil was what predicated the good, was it God's will for the evil to come about? And my answer to that is no. My answer to that is no, because God gives us free will. God wants nothing but good for us, his creation. He has nothing but love for us as his creation. But he also knows and understands that ultimately we're a bunch of idiots. We're going to do a bunch of idiotic things, and we're going to make really bad choices, and we're going to do things that are going to harm ourselves or harm others. We're going to do things that are going to damage relationships. But that doesn't mean that God can't use the evil actions that we choose to make to bring about the good and the glory for his holy name. And see, that's exactly what happens here in Genesis with the life of Joseph. Did God want Joseph to go into slavery? No. Does God want somebody to end up on drugs? Not at all. But can God use somebody's drug addiction to bring about ultimately a change of heart and life in them to free them of the enemy's grip in their life and birth a, a, a believing-based, biblically-based drug uh, uh, rehabilitation program? Absolutely. Was it God's will to use them in that place? More than likely. Was it his desire and his will for them to go through what they had to go through to get to that place? <laughs> Probably not. Some of you have heard me tell the story before. We've got a friend uh, from our, our synagogue in Georgia that went to prison for a few years because he made one really bad decision, and he went drinking one night and got drunk, climbed in his car, drove home about a mile from his house. He gets into a car accident, and three people, two adults and a child in the other car die. He ends up in the hospital for a while. He's pretty, pretty banged up. Um, but, uh, and, and then it turns out in the investigation, the, the driver and the other adult in the other car were both drunk too. That from their car, there were beer cans and stuff all over the place in the car. Um, and, uh, and that they had, the, the investigation actually showed that they had actually crossed into his lane. So other than him being drunk, he had no responsibility at all for the causation of the accident. Yet he found himself in the place that because he walked away from it, he became the scapegoat. Now, he understood he messed up. He made a bad choice. He made a stupid decision. And he's okay with the idea that there are consequences sometimes that go along with stupid decisions. So he was okay with whatever happened. And so as we were uh, getting ready, he took a plea deal. As we were getting ready for a sentencing hearing, it took almost three years from to have a sentencing hearing. So here he is carrying this weight of everything that went on on his shoulders for three years. We're waiting for a sentencing hearing. And I asked him when I was like, look, do you think you're going to up in prison? And he goes, you know, I really don't know. He goes, but I can tell you this, if I end up in prison or if I don't end up in prison, I know it's God's will for my life. And I went, how dare you be so arrogant? He goes, what are you talking about? How dare you accuse God for you being in this situation? You made a choice. It brought about consequences. Those consequences are where you find yourself at now. 
But don't put that on God. He didn't put you in the situation. You chose it. That doesn't mean God can't use. If you end up going to prison, that doesn't mean God can't use you in prison. That doesn't mean God can't use you afterward. That doesn't mean that God won't take this very bad situation and turn it into something that becomes glory for his kingdom if you allow him. And it doesn't mean that whatever comes out of this on the other end, if you end up with whatever kind of ministry, it doesn't mean that it was ever God's will for you to go through all of this in preparation for that. But the reality is, God's will for your life is to use you. And he knows the mistakes and the, 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 the poor actions and decisions that we're going to make. He knows, he knew before any of us were ever created that this guy was going to make a poor decision one night and go to a bar and have a few drinks and then a few more and then climb in his car and get to a wreck. He knew in advance that all this was going to go on. Doesn't mean he wanted it to happen, but it also doesn't mean God's not going to use it for his good. And that's exactly what happened. And he goes to prison and right out the gate, he spends five years in prison and right out the gate when he goes to the county facility awaiting a bed in the state uh, system, he gets made into a trustee within two weeks. And then he gets made to the head trustee and he's the only person on the campus not in a guard's uniform that can walk anywhere he wants in the campus all over the place. We'd go visit him and he'd walk out to the car with us when we were leaving to say goodbye and, and all this kind of stuff. When I would go to visit him, the... the, the um, the, the jailer would uh, actually give up his office and let us meet in his office rather than us having to meet in the, the little lawyer's room, whatever it's called, the visitation room, uh, and so on. He goes to the state facility, and right out the gate and going to the state facility, he ends up a trustee, and he ends up getting all these special treatments and so on, and then he gets into his uh, official capacity in the prison because you go through this whole psych eval thing for uh, a couple of months, and then he goes into the actual prison system, and when he gets in the prison system, he gets this opportunity handed to him that the state has this really, Georgia has this really neat program for rehabilitation of uh, um, nonviolent offenders um, and our first-time offenders, however it works out, and what it ends up being is he gets an opportunity to get trained by the state while he's in prison to get trained by the state for, to, to be a firefighter. And I don't mean just how to put out fires. I mean, he goes through every state and national firefighting certification there is, including hazmat certification, all on the state's dime while he's in prison. And instead of being in a normal prison, he gets to go to a special work camp that has a firehouse on campus that's outside of the gated part of the prison. He gets to go and respond with the firehouse. They have an actual fire chief over them, but it's nothing but prisoners that are, are part of this firehouse. He gets to go respond outside of the prison all the time to calls. He gets to go out in the community and, and interact. He didn't have, other than the guard coming through the, the firehouse twice a day for headcount, he never had to see a guard or deal with a guard at all for almost four years of his prison sentence, he got to, to have this opportunity. And then when he gets out, he has, or when he got out, he had uh, Georgia First Offenders Rights, uh, uh, which basically they've got this setup where if you're a first offender, first time offender, when you finish your sentence, the complete sentence, he had five years in prison, five years uh, probation, and they also had five, uh, 10 years probation for the second count on top of that, uh, served congruently. So when he finishes the total 10-year congruent sentences, then he's got no record whatsoever. It's a felony, but it all wipes away. He never has to tell any employer or anyone else that he was ever in prison, that he ever had a felony or anything like that. Um, and I mean, just mind-blowing the favor of God. The judge that he was going before was a Jewish guy that knew me, that knew our, uh, our senior rabbi, hated us, could not stand us, hated that we were believers, hated that we were messianic, hated that we had a messianic synagogue that called itself a synagogue, but we believed in Yeshua, we believed in Jesus as the Messiah, and it was this big thing, and, and I mean, he absolutely hated us, 
and he was extremely hard on uh, drunk driving cases. I mean, mind-boggling, would go to the farthest extent of the law for sentencing on, uh, on drunk driving cases. I mean, it was crazy how uh, hardcore he was about it. And so they, the, the guy asked me to be one of his character witnesses at the sentencing hearing. I was like, dude, <laughs> might not be a good idea, man. I'm happy to be there, but you might want to rethink this. He goes, no, no, I want you to be a character witness. I don't care what happens. I want you to speak for me and to be a character witness in my case. So I did. I went and spoke before the judge. And, um, and it ends up being that the judge gave uh, the most lenient sentence he's ever given in his history on the, 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 uh, the bench, the most lenient sentence he's ever given in a case like this. Uh, and not only that, but he gave him first offenders, which he usually doesn't do in these situations. I mean, I mean, it was mind-blowing the way that God worked in his favor in this situation. And so we get to see all of these things, and we recognize, you know what? We make dumb, dumb decisions sometimes. We do stupid stuff. We hurt people. Joseph was hurt by his brothers. Could you imagine being sold into slavery by your own blood, by your own family? Like, how many of us have had our brothers and our sisters, our parents, our grandparents, whatever, stomp on our toes, say something to hurt our feelings? Can you imagine how much greater the pain we would be dealing with if they sold us into slavery? Keep in mind that before that, they were talking about just offing us. They wanted to kill them. The only reason they let them live was because they could make a dime off of it. And they sent them off into slavery. Could you imagine? And then to sit there after being enslaved for years and being in prison for years and everything that you went through, to sit there in front of them the first time they come before you and you don't lunge out and chop their heads off and you're the most powerful dude in Egypt, who's going to stop you? Who's going to say something? Who's going to, you can make up any story you want. I mean, made up a story about the goblet, right? They can make up any story they wanted. You and I, in a heartbeat, without ever thinking about it, would respond to a stupid situation with stupidity, unless we are completely and totally grounded in the reality of the power of God in our lives. And this was Joseph. In spite of everything he went through, he cleaved to the visions and the dreams and the promises of God, not just for his life, but the promises and the covenants made with his forefather Jacob and his forefather Isaac and his forefather Abraham, with the promises and covenants that God was going to make a great nation out of their descendants. And he recognized that although he may not understand why he's suffering through all of this mess that he's going through, he knew without a doubt that God had a purpose through it all. Maybe it wasn't God's will for him to wind up in the situations he did, but God had a purpose. And this is why at the end of the last, next week's Parsha, he says to them, do not be afraid, for I am, am I in the place of God. Yes, you yourselves planned evil against me, but God planned it for good in order to bring about what it is this day to preserve the life of many. This discussion, this, this narrative of Joseph's life here, and especially his revelation of who he is to his brothers, brings to, to heart, brings to mind Yeshua in the, the Garden of Gethsemane, just before he's uh, uh, handed over by the traitor uh, uh, Yehudah, Judah, Judas, to the, the, the uh, authorities. And in verse 36 of Matthew 26, it says, Then Yeshua came with them to the place called Gethsemane, and he tells the disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took along Peter and Zebedee's two sons, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he tells them, My soul is deeply grieved, even to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell, on his face, uh, fell, on it, fell face down and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass 
from me. You yet not as I will, but as you will. Yeshua knew perfectly well God's will was for him to offer his life for the sins of the nation of Israel and all of the nations who are part of God's creation. He knew what God's will was. Does that mean that the, the, the heart of his own brothers, the, the nation of Israel, and what they were about to do to him and what they had continually attempted to do to him throughout his three-year ministry, does that mean that that was absolutely how God wanted it to go down? I don't think so. God knew it was going to happen. God knows our hearts. He knows our decisions. But God doesn't work with us like puppet masters. He's not going to make us hate Yeshua so that we can put him on the cross. But he's also not going to stop it if it's part of his plan for him to be on that cross. And he understands and knows our choices long before we ever make them. But don't water it down and forget that it was your choice. And I say you and I say me because it wasn't just the Israelites in the first century that put Yeshua on the cross. As a matter of fact, legally speaking, they didn't and they couldn't. So in spite of the age-old anti-Semitic argument that the Jews put Christ on the cross and the, the Jews need to die, it's just not accurate. It's not historical. It's not biblical. It's garbage. If you look at the history of Roman Empire, Israel was not allowed the authority for capital punishment. We couldn't do that legally. Doesn't mean they didn't want to, but we couldn't do that legally. So guess what? We gave them over to the Romans, right? So yeah, we sold them out just like Joseph's brothers sold him out. But who was it that put him on the cross? It was the Gentiles. It was the Romans. But the beauty of that is that it took both Jew and Gentile to put him on the cross. It took you and me and our sins and our poor decisions and our uh, 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 less than perfect understanding of God's will in our life. It took our free will to walk away from our relationship with the Lord. It took our willingness to serve the goals of the enemy over the goals of Adonai to put him on that cross. Was it his plan to end up there and to die for our sins? Absolutely no doubt about it. How he got there was totally in our hands. Both Jew and Gentile alike. We put him there. Our sins did. It wasn't just the Jews. It wasn't just the, the Romans. But it was all of us. All who lived before us and all who will live after us until the coming kingdom of Messiah is established eternally here on earth. Our sins put him on that cross. We go forward to Luke 24, verse 45. This is after Yeshua has numerous times revealed himself to his disciples uh, post the resurrection. Verse 45 says, Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. And he said to them, So it is written, What the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead uh, on the third day. That the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. And that repentance for the removal of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That's speaking of the outpouring of the Ruach HaKodesh that would occur in Acts 2. As we look at this, Yeshua is saying, just like Joseph said to his brothers, look, don't be afraid. Don't be worried. Don't think that I'm going to have some, some vendetta against you. You need to understand that it wasn't you that put me here. It was our Father, our Heavenly Father, that allowed me to be in this place, that allowed me the opportunity to die on that cross, to be resurrected, and ultimately in a few verses to ascend into heaven, to pour out of my blood upon the mercy seat so that you could be restored in spite of 
how you sold me out, in spite of how you sinned against your creator, in spite of how you chose the ways of the world over the ways of God. It was his will to put me on there so that just like Joseph said to his brothers, so that when the time comes, there will be a great nation that has been birthed for a phenomenally amazing escape. So you gotta understand what we were about to read in the coming weeks in the book of Exodus is a foreshadowing of what is going to happen when we are ultimately redeemed from the reality of this present world and all of its evils and everything that goes on with it. And Yeshua is saying to his disciples, just as Joseph said to his brothers, look guys, you put me here. It's your actions that caused this to occur. And whether we're talking Yeshua being hung on the cross physically or we're talking our sins that were, were caused the requirement for him to be hung on the cross, it was our actions that put him there, our choices. God didn't make us make the choices that we made. As a matter of fact, if God was going to make us do anything, it would be the right thing. But instead, we chose the wrong ways, the wrong paths, the wrong people to roll with, the wrong decisions to make, the wrong people to hurt. We chose the wrong people to, uh, to, to inter interact with. We chose the wrong things to do in our life, whether it's putting a needle in your arm, uh, whether it is driving uh, uh, recklessly, whether it is uh, stealing something, no matter what it is that we've done, we chose to put ourselves in those situations, and yet we serve a God who is so faithful, who is so loving, who is so gracious, who is so merciful that he put a plan of salvation in play. He put a plan of redemption, just as he did with Joseph for the nation of Israel, that would be birthed. He put a plan of redemption in play long before we ever sinned. As a matter of fact, long before creation was ever spoken into existence, he put a plan of redemption and salvation in place so that we could be restored to him in spite of our pasts in spite of the people we've harmed and the way we've harmed ourselves. And in closing, Ephesians 2, verse 1, says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. At that time, you walked in the way of the world in conformity to the ruler of the domain of the air, the ruler of the spirit who is now operating in the sons of disobedience. We too all lived among them in the cravings of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind. By nature, we were children of wrath, just like the others, but God was rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Messiah. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Messiah Yeshua to show in the Elam Haba, in the world that is, the measureless richness of his grace and the kindness uh, toward us in Messiah Yeshua. For the grace you have been saved through faith, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is from the gift of God. It is not based on deeds so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Messiah Yeshua for good deeds which God prepared beforehand so we might walk in them. And by the way, Elam Haba is the world that will come. Elam Hazay is the world that is. Uh, he says, so I've done this for the Elam Haba, for the world that is to come, for the kingdom of Messiah. That God has provided this, not because of our good actions, but rather in spite of our bad. His love for us is so great that he doesn't count our mistakes, our sins, our trespasses against him prior to Mashiach against us when the time comes that we accept Messiah as our salvation. Instead, he washes it all away. 
and all the consequence due us eternally is taken away. It doesn't mean there won't be consequences here on earth. It doesn't mean that there won't be consequences we have to deal with here. But eternally, it's gone. We are forgiven, we are restored, we are renewed in spite of how we sold him out, in spite of how we handed him over to the Romans, in spite of how it was our sins, our actions that put him on that stake, on that cross. He loved us so much before he ever created creation itself. He loved each and every one of us hearing these words today so much that before we ever had a chance to have the first thought that would lead us down the path of sin, he had already provided a means of redemption and salvation to restore us to him. I don't know about you, but that's mind-boggling. As a parent, to try and think that far ahead for my children, just in the mistakes and the, the, the way that they're going to break the rules of our own household, to try and think that far ahead, to have a great lesson in all of it, right? I can't, much less the fact that he's done that for all the history of creation, all before the first breath was ever breathed by Adam and Chava, by Adam and Eve all before the first word of creation was ever spoken. Like we've said before, God does not have plan Bs. He didn't create Adam and Eve to be perfect, to live in the garden, spit out a bunch of kids in the garden, and go, geez, I did not see the fallen fruit thing. I didn't see that coming. I did not see the serpent trick. Man, how did that slip by me? All right, let me quickly uh, get out my notebook. We'll brainstorm. We'll come up with another plan, and oh, pff, I got it. I'm going to come down robed in flesh, and I'm going to offer my own life on the cross for them. No, God doesn't have plan Bs. God knew the choice that Adam and Eve were going to make. He knew the actions of the serpent. He knew how we were going to allow the ways of the enemy into our lives long before we ever heard the first word of creation go into existence. So God so loved the world that he created us so he could give his only begotten son so that whoever will believe in him can have everlasting life. It's my favorite rephrasing of John. That's not to try and add to and take away from, but that's the reality of those words. For God so loved you and me so much that he created us knowing we were going to turn our back on him, knowing we were going to walk away from him, knowing that we were going to mar his creation. He created us anyways so that he could give his only begotten son so that you and I could be restored in relationship with him for all eternity. Wrap your heads around that one. Open your hearts and understand the mercy and the love that he has for each and every one of us. And here's the kicker. It's not just for you and I in this room. It's not just for you and I hearing these words right now. It's for every single breathing human being that exists on the face of this earth. I don't care how good or how bad. I don't care what their faith is. I don't care what their background is. Yeshua gave his life for each and every human being, Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free, it doesn't matter. He gave his life for each and every one of us to have opportunity to be restored into his kingdom for eternity. And just like what happens before we accept him is all our decision, whether or not we accept him is all our decision. I believe wholeheartedly that God predestined for all to be saved, but he left the decision in our court. The ball's ours, whether we want to accept it or not. But you need to understand that he loves you. 
He loves your family. He loves your friends. He loves every person you come into contact with so much that he gave his own life on the cross that we could be restored. So the question is, like Joseph, who was willing to go through everything that he went through to get to where God's plan was for his life, what are you willing to do for him? How far are you willing to go to see his salvation be known? How willing are you to sacrifice your own life for his name and for his sake and for his glory before all men? Some of us sometimes, it's pretty hard to get the willingness to stand in the line of the grocery store and be willing to allow our lives to be used in that way. But he allowed us to be restored in his glory for his purposes. So how much more so in the 21st century and the power and the glory of Yeshua's salvation and the, the authority of the Ruach HaKodesh, how much more important is it for us today to be willing to be used by God as Joseph was? for the good and the purpose of the kingdom of God. Amen. Avrachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Lord, I ask that as we move forward uh, from this service, as we move on throughout this day and each day that follows, that you will awaken our hearts to your will in our lives. That, Father, you have not given us salvation, that we may waste it and uh, uh, squander it away without doing anything for your kingdom. But Lord, you have given us salvation that we may draw others into your kingdom, that we may lead others to your salvation, to your saving grace. Father, we may not always have the words, but if we trust in your leading and your Ruach HaKodesh, you will give us your words for each and every person that you put in our path. Father, have your will and your way in our lives and awaken us to the reality of how much you love us and how terribly you desire our love. In return, B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu, in the name of Yeshua Messiah, we pray and everyone says, Amen and Amen.